We're one week removed from Easter. It seems a long time away for me. I don't know why. It just seems like a long time since Easter. But the cross, the empty cross this morning, is a vivid reminder that it's still true. It's still Easter. I don't know if any of you happened to see a week ago um, Pope Francis in a rather impromptu speech at St. Peter's Basilica. He was reflecting on Easter of the suffering in the world, all of the wars, the oppressive regimes throughout the world, human trafficking, corruption, famine, and domestic violence. And at the end, he said, we must hold fast to our faithful hearts. We need to hold fast to our faith. He was just simply acknowledging that many people wonder where God is today. I mean, there seems to be so much evil, so much suffering in this world. Where is God? Now today, I want to share with you what I would call a major message from a minor prophet. Now, if you have Bibles, and if you ever studied your Bible, you know that there are 17 prophetic books in the Old Testament. We have five of them we call major prophets. We have 12 of them are called minor prophets. And they're not major or minor because one is more important than the other. It really has to do with their size. In fact, in my Bible, the minor prophets only take up 61 pages of our entire Bible. So we're talking about some pretty short books. They're the kind of books that you guys can read and should read and should study. And today we're going to look at one of them, Habakkuk. It contains just 56 verses in three chapters, so you all could go home this afternoon and read it and read it and read it and read it. You're going to learn a lot of amazing things. And even though he is considered to be a minor prophet... Uh, there is nothing minor at all about his message. I mean, he's writing a, about a topic that we all think about eventually, even the Pope. I mean, even the Pope thinks about it. I mean, Habakkuk is unlike any other prophetic book that you're going to read in that it really records a dialogue between man and God. I mean, for example, if you're going to read the book of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah contains a message from God. But here in Habakkuk, it's a conversation that he has with God. And if you've ever felt like you had questions for God, anybody ever had some questions you want to ask God sometimes? If you ever had had that feeling, this is the book for you because you can read a conversation between man and God. Now, just give you a little bit of background here. Uh, The year is about 605 B.C. King Josiah, the really good king in the Bible, died. And it seemed like after the good king left, everything kind of went to hell in a handbasket. I mean, there was this, it was a cesspool of corruption, uh, immorality, idolatry. It just plagued that nation of Judah for, for years. And this time it seemed like the people were, were just hell bent on their own destruction. And instead of just edging toward the cliff, it appeared like they were just determined to plunge over that cliff at full speed. It was as if the nation had a death wish and had absolutely no use for God at all. Does that sound even vaguely familiar to today? And then onto the scene comes Habakkuk, a man that we know almost nothing about. Uh, We assume that he's about 30 years old. Uh, He was a contemporary of Ezekiel and Jeremiah, probably maybe 10 to 15 years older than the prophet Daniel. 
And when he saw this terrible moral decline in his country, the country of Judah, he prayed. And what he prayed for was, God, please do something. Anybody prayed that prayer lately? Lord, please do something. It just, this world seems to be going crazy. In his mind, he no doubt thought and maybe hoped that God would raise up another good king to lead the people in the right direction. And little did he know that God's answer was going to come in the form of the hated Babylonians. That's why one of the men in my Bible class said, what are you preaching about this weekend? And I said, I'm preaching from the book of Habakkuk. He said, oh, be careful what you pray for. That would be a great title for this book, but I said I already had a different title for this message. Um, and as I consider the situation behind this book, I, I'm reminded of some famous words by Billy Graham that were spoken about 60 years ago uh, when he said, if God does not judge America, he really has to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> and, and if these words were true 60 years ago, I wonder if they wouldn't even be more true today. So Habakkuk, like us, lived in confusing times. And so that's where we kind of need to sit and soak a while with Habakkuk to find a faith strong enough to make it through the difficult times that we all face. Now Habakkuk wrote out his argument, and it's kind of interesting, in chapter 1, his faith is tested, but in chapter 2, his faith is taught, and chapter 3, that faith kind of comes out on the triumphant side. So as you read that, you're going to notice or you're going to see how it's arranged from an argument to an answer to acceptance or asking and waiting and praying. But along the way, what Habakkuk does here is he experiences a total change in his life. And I'd suggest, I mean, I've read this book so many times. I'd suggest to you, if you take it this afternoon, sometimes you read it again, you're going to notice the same thing. He goes from fear to faith. He goes from burden to blessing. He goes from perplexity to praise. He goes from confusion to confidence. He goes from worry to worship. Now, I don't know about you, but I've tracked through every one of those at one time or another in my life. I've been worried about something, and I kind of walked out on the other side, and I just said, praise God from whom all blessings flows. There have been times when life seemed to be a burden. Things just were not going well. But I stepped back, and I realized it was a blessing. If you see my wife Nancy after a while and you see her in a walker and you're going to say, oh, poor Nancy, you know, fractured uh, pelvis, you know, she'll tell you how in the end that really turned out to be a blessing. Isn't that interesting? But it depends where your focus is, doesn't it? Now, my good friend, Dr. Harry Went from Crossways International says that Habakkuk starts with a question mark, but it ends with an exclamation point. And in many ways, this little book in front of us today is a very modern book because it helps us wrestle with many of the questions that you and I have today. Now, while I, at Angola Prison, by the way, it feels kind of nice to stand behind a pulpit. I, the last time I preached a couple of months ago, I stood behind a, a pulpit just like this down at Angola Prison. And I met a young man who came up to me and he said, Doc, I, I'm just really troubled about a lot of stuff. And I said, what? And he said, well, I'm exhausted with life. And I'd kill myself, except that I'm a coward and I don't have the guts to do it. My question to you, and he looked at me, he says, where is God right now? Why is God so silent in my life? Why doesn't he do something? Now, I think we've all been there at one time or another. Maybe we wouldn't have put it exactly that way. But when we're up against problems that seems have no human solution... 
We often look to heaven and we cry out, God, why don't you do something? And the same is true now for Habakkuk. He opens this book and he's terribly confused, he's terribly agitated, and there are three things that really bother him. And I'm going to suggest to you that these are three things that probably bother you, and I know they bother me today. The first one of these is the issue of unanswered prayer. Do you ever feel like your prayers were kind of hitting a glass ceiling and bouncing down? You wonder whether God was actually listening? I mean, Habakkuk says, how long, O Lord, must I, you know, how long do I have to pray? How long do I have to ask for help? How long do I have to pray for healing? But you're not listening to me. I cry out, violence, look at all this stuff going around. Why don't you save us? Now, considering the things that are going on in the world today, I mean, warfare and murder and corruption in high places and sexual perversion and uh, looting and robbery, and, I mean, the list goes on and on. The same things were happening back in 605 B.C. And Habakkuk looks out at the land. He looks out probably at his own life, but in his own country and says, God, how can you let this go on? See, sooner or later, all of us go through that. A godly mother praying for her wayward son. Raised in the church, went to Sunday school, knows his Bible. But when he left home, he left it all behind. For many years she prayed for him, but he remains a prodigal. She knows what that's like. A wife prays for her husband, who suddenly leaves her after 23 years of marriage. For a younger woman, he seems utterly unreachable, and the marriage swiftly ends in divorce. Her husband prays for his wife, who has terminal cancer. She's told that she has six to seven months to live, and none of the treatments appear to be working. I mean, the elders and the pastor come to the house, and they anoint her with oil in the name of the Lord, and yet she still dies five months later. Her young man prays for deliverance from a, 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 uh, an overpowering temptation, but the struggle never seems to end. In fact, it seems like the more he prays, the worse it becomes. If we bring it a little bit closer home, I don't know if you remember what happened about a year ago in April. Remember the girls from Nigeria? A year ago, April, 276 Nigerian schoolgirls were kidnapped by that Muslim terrorist group Boko Haram. Now, most of these girls were Christian, although a few of them were Muslim. Their crime? They wanted an education. That's all they wanted. Something that radical Muslims do not want for their women. Now, for a while, maybe you even did this on your Facebook or uh, on Instagram or Twitter. You used that little hashtag, bring back our girls. Do you remember that? That was a year ago. And for a while, we got really, really concerned. Uh, millions of Christians prayed, but so far, only 57 of those kidnapped girls have been brought back. We don't know what happened to the rest of them. Some may have been sold as child brides. Some forced into sex slavery. And the people who stole them actually were so bold to put their videos on Facebook and other places. So sometimes we just step back and we just say, Lord, where are you? Why don't you do something about this? And so we cry out, just like David did in Psalm 10, Why, O Lord, do you stand so far off? Why do you hide yourself during that time of trouble? But there's a second issue here. And issue number two is this uncontrolled, uncontrolled perversity. Habakkuk says, why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There's strife and conflict. Therefore, the law is paralyzed. Justice never prevails. Does that sound the least bit familiar? The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. You know, when lawlessness abounds, guess what? No one is safe. 
Over the 4th of July weekend, many of you know, last year in Chicago, 82 people were shot and 14 killed. But I got news for you. It's not just in Chicago. It's in Branson, Missouri as well. Not long ago, I actually read this headline in USA Today. Police chief rabbi among 71 nabbed in child porn bust. Whoa. Here's the first line in the article. Two police officers, a rabbi, a registered nurse, a nanny, and a Boy Scout leader were among 70 men and one woman arrested on charges of trading child pornography in what federal officials say is one of the largest ever roundups in the New York City area. And then it says the expansion of this is passed through the dark web. I'm not going to go into what the dark web is, but it's, it's not Google, let me tell you. It's not Google. See, certainly technology is not a bad thing, but when it's used for bad things, it's really a bad thing. So we see that in our own society. It just seems like perversity grows by leaps and bounds. Issue number three was an unexpected answer. Have you ever got an answer from God that you didn't expect? Oh, I did. I remember my first church. I love the Pacific Northwest. Probably like you like Colorado, but I just said, God, if I ever get a call to the Pacific Northwest, I will accept it sight unseen. I prayed that prayer out loud one day in my office in Belvedere, Illinois. The next day I got a call from Edmonds, Washington. <laughs> I went out there. It's a beautiful place, a beautiful redwood church sitting in a pine thing overlooking Puget Sound. Oh, the cooks at that church were absolutely phenomenal, but I couldn't think of one single reason to leave Belvedere at that time. But as if God says, okay, <laughs> you got an unexpected answer, but it taught me a lesson. Now, Habakkuk says, look at the nation. Or this is God now finally speaking up. And God says, look at the nations and watch. Be utterly amazed. Because I'm going to give you an answer. He says, I'm going to give you an answer. I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. And, and I think if I were Habakkuk and I heard that, I would think that, what he was believing was that God was going to somehow send a major spiritual awakening. He was going to send a revival that would rid the nation of idolatry and bring them all back to God. And sometimes preachers, and I'll tell you, sometimes prophets use that verse completely out of context. And they use it as a basis for, for praying for revival in our day. And while I certainly think we ought to pray for revival... That's not what this verse is out about at all, because God is going to send something, but it's not a revival. In fact, he says to Habakkuk in verse 6, here's the answer to your prayer. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth. And I think nothing God said could have shocked him more than to hear that. I mean, he knew about these Babylonians. They were hated and feared across the face of the earth. I mean, under Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, their army just plundered every nation around them. If they wanted a city, they took a city. If they wanted a province, they took a province. If they wanted a nation, they took a nation. And if the people that they conquered weren't uh, servile enough, they would pile up uh, skulls in the middle of the the city just as a way of showing them what was going to happen. They hauled off their kings with hooks through their cheeks and hooks through their noses. I mean, these were nasty people. And God knew how bad they are. In fact, as you, if we tracked through this before, it said they were ruthless and impetuous and feared and the law unto themselves. They gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings. They laugh at fortified cities. They never stop. But it also says, whose strength is their God. Now the point is, these were nasty people and God knows how bad they are. It's not like God was going to raise up the uh, little sisters of the poor to save Jesus. 
This is not God saying, I'm going to send in some uh, Boy Scouts to do the job. When God decides to judge his people, he picks the baddest nation on the whole block. And none of this makes any sense whatsoever to Habakkuk. It's as if God says to us, I'm going to raise up Al-Qaeda or ISIS to judge America. Because you do not respect my law, let's see how you do with Sharia law. Now, as shocking as that may sound to us, that's exactly how God's message sounded to Habakkuk several thousand years ago. He just could not believe what he had heard. Maybe some of you are familiar with the story of Miriam Ibrahim. She's a 27-year-old medical doctor living in Sudan. Uh, She was arrested and tried. She was convicted of apostasy and adultery. Now, she, her crime was supposedly she converted from Islam when, in fact, she'd been raised as a Christian. And she really wasn't apostate because, as far as I know, to be apostate, you, you have to belong to one religion first before you can join another one. And they accused her of adultery because she had a child with her husband who happened to be a Christian. And uh, she was sentenced to death for hanging, for apostasy, and a th- hundred lashes for her adultery. And uh, she was given many chances to recant her Christian faith. And time again, she just said, no, I'm a Christian. I will always be a Christian. I will always follow Christ. And because of her witness, she was not only kept in jail, she was kept in shackles. In fact, she was in shackles when she gave birth to her baby. And through it all, she steadfastly said, I refuse to renounce the name of Jesus. Now, she has since been released and is back with her husband here in the States. But when I hear something like that, I wonder sometimes, what if God allows this kind of stuff for a purpose? Are we in the situation we are today, and sometimes even in the situation we may find ourselves in our personal lives, what if God allows that to happen for a purpose? What if these things have to happen? And then I think back to the story of the prodigal son. And there's a great line in there when, the, when he's on his hands and knees in front of that pig trough. What does it say? And when he came to his senses. It's better to be a servant back in, in his dad's house, wasn't it? I'm going to go back. And God used that to turn him another direction. Being at Angola a couple of months ago, another inmate asked me to pray for his prodigal daughter. Said she's being raised in a godly home, but she seems bent on going her own way. And he said, you know, I think she's going to have to hit rock bottom first. And we prayed together that God would do whatever God wanted to do. To open the eyes of her heart so that the light of heaven, the light of Jesus could shine into her life. Now, I hear people all the time say, we need to pray for revival in America, and I certainly agree. And I, some people say we're on this brink of a great movement back to God. I don't know whether that's true or not, but I think we need to pray and work to that end. But at the same time, there are questions that beg for an answer, and that is, why have we as a nation, and why have we as so many, even Christians, I mean, a wonderful book, not wonderful, it's a terrible book, about the atheist in the pew, how there are so many people who come to churches on a Sunday who really don't have a functional faith in Jesus. I mean, why do we have collapsing moral standards, even in places that seem like... I mean, I live in Branson, Missouri. You'd say, man, that's a place where all the Christians and all the, and all the patriots live. It's also home to one of the largest meth, meth manufacturer group of people 
In America, I think the answer is pretty clear. And that is, as a nation, we don't need God. In fact, I, I almost sometimes think, as Christians, we view ourselves as saying we really don't need Him. It's kind of nice to celebrate on Easter, kind of fun time, but we really don't need Him once we go back to work on Monday. We're do fine without Him. Some of you may remember 9-11, some of you that are old enough. Now, do you remember the Sunday at Lord of Life and the other building the Sunday after 9-11? Church was packed. Maybe where you were mad back at that time. Church was kind of packed. Millions of Americans responded to that terrorist attack by coming to worship. But then it didn't take very long until that post-crisis attendance bump disappeared and we kind of returned back to normal, more or less. And we said to ourselves, you know, things will never be the same again. But they were wrong. I'm going to tell you why. And I think at that time, whenever a crisis hits in our life, whether it's 9-11 for our country, whether it's a personal crisis, we turn toward God, but we do not turn to God. And there's an enormous difference. We kind of turned in his direction and like, Lord, help us. But we did not repent of our sins. We didn't come back to him and beg for his forgiveness. See, everyone hearing this message today, everybody here today is in one of three places. You're either in confusing times right now. I don't know who you are, but I'm sure there are people here today. Life is pretty confusing for you right now. Or you're coming out of some confusing times, and if you are, praise God. And some of you are about to head into them, but you don't know it yet. Well, this is all the bad news. This so far I've given you. <laughs> Can I give you a little bit of good news on the way out? How about we wrap up with some some um, some important insights? Part of our problem is we only see part of the picture. Matt is an artist. You had your big painting up here a year ago. Was it around Easter time? You're doing that. Can you picture an ant crawling across your painting? You know, he crawls, crawls across the dark brown and he thinks, life is all brown. And then all of a sudden he hits the green and he goes, wow, life is really green. And then it becomes dark blue and, and then all of a sudden a splash of yellow. Oh, happy days are here again. And then he goes from color to color, never realizing that God is taking all of that and working it into some grand masterpiece. And one day you suddenly discover that every color had a place. Every color had a reason Nothing was wasted, nothing was out of place, that God has brought you into his family through Jesus Christ and made a masterpiece out of you. See, just as there's a season for everything, just like the writer of Ecclesiastes says, there's a color for every stage of your life. When the painting is finished and you realize that you are God's masterpiece, we are made new through the blood of Jesus Christ. So we need to realize it's all part of a much bigger picture. The second thing is, God is not limited to what we think he ought to do. Anybody here ever played God? I did a series of messages earlier this summer, and it was called Seven Important Things Christians Need to Know. The first one was this, God is God, you're not. Get over it. See, we continue to make the mistake of thinking that our plans are God's plans. (laughs) Or they should be, but they aren't. Some wise person told me a long time ago, write your plans in pencil and give God the eraser. God is in charge. God knows more than you do. 
I can, I can well imagine, you know, did the disciples argue with Jesus on his resolute march to the cross? Oh, you bet they did. You know, come on, Jesus, stop your foolish talking, Peter said. Oh, get behind me, Satan. Your ideas are not the ones that run this universe, friends. It's God who's in control of everything. There's another way of saying this, and it's this, that if your God always does what you want, he's probably not the God of the Bible. Because God will be no man's servant. He's God. God does whatever he pleases. And we need to just step back and say, Lord, here I am. Just like Isaiah said, you know, who will go for me? Isaiah said, here I am, take me. I'll go where you send me. So what we need sometimes is just to step back as Christians and realize that what we need is a bigger God. I mean, Habakkuk got messed up because he thought he knew what God should do. I mean, chapter 1 already tells us he was wrong twice. First, when he thought God was ignoring their sin. And second, when he couldn't believe that God would actually use the Babylonians to judge the people. And so I say, friends, we all need a bigger God. We need a God that is way bigger than our puny ideas. We need a God whose ways will always surprise us. I don't know whether it's just getting older or not, but I just love being surprised by God. This church is a surprise. I mean, I prayed with Matt before the service. And then you think back, uh, I don't want to do a long thing, but this church has really been blessed since day one. Good pastors. Back from Scott, I'd include myself and then Pastor Phil and now Pastor Matt. And God has surprised us all along the way. I mean, who would think that meeting in a school, carting everything in a horse trailer, would be here today. There may be people here today that had never thought about being in a church ever before, but God surprised them in a big way. Maybe it was in the midst of a disaster when God says, guess what? I can take care of you. So how big is your God, friends? My advice, based on years of experience, is this. You better figure out the answer to that question before the hard times come. One final thought. Anybody familiar with the the TV show called Friday Night Lights? It's about football in West Texas. In that series, you thought I'd get around to sports analogy pretty soon, wouldn't you? But the coach out in West Texas has his players repeat three phrases. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. When I was watching it, I thought I could do that better. And I, I came up with something a little bit bigger. And it's this. Clear eyes, full heart, no fear. God is good. You say that together with me real quick. Clear eyes, full heart, no fear. God is good. Clear eyes. We see what God is doing. We see empty crosses. We see children brought into faith through baptism. We see the shed body and blood of Jesus given for the forgiveness of all our sins. I'll tell you, if that doesn't make your heart full, my first year as a pastor, walking out of church while they were singing, I know that my Redeemer lives and the timpanies are going and the trumpets are blowing and everything. I remember turning to my assistant, Gene Willie, and said, oh man, this is really real, isn't it? I mean, I was so pumped. I was so stoked. I was so full of experiencing God's love at that time. And because of that, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear nothing. Why? Because I'm a bad man? No. Because God goes ahead of me. No fear. And the reason? Because God is so good. How good is God? 
He loved you so much, what, that he gave his only begotten son to die for you. Clear eyes, full heart, no fear. God is good. Let's pray. Father, as we go through this story, as we've gone through this story of a man who wrestled with you, uh, we're so very glad that you included it in your book so that we would know how honest we can be with you. Thank you that you listen to us in our complaints and you don't turn us away. Open your word to us so that our vision of who you are might grow. For we need a big God, but we've certainly got one. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.